Welcome to Over in Smith, an HP Lovecraft podcast where we read the complete works of HP Lovecraft. Uh, today we'll be reading The Shadow Out of Time, Chapter 5. And with me is somebody who's understandably afraid of Shogoths. What Bart? Uh, hi. They just, they're just so weird. They keep on mocking me every time I be like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? They're <laughs> 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 they fucking would they would that'd be their thing oh god uh but yeah um reading chapter five of shadow out of time i almost said shadow over in smith um and last chapter we learned more a little bit more about the yith or the great race or whatever they're called and we basically learned um that despite the fact that this dude's been hyping them up the whole time, like, oh, yeah, they have this incredible ability to switch places with somebody's mind. And also, like, they're incredibly intelligent. They have this uh, society where they've created all this technology. But we've also learned some, like, things about them. Like, they are afraid of some things. And... Like everything else, they will inevitably meet the end of the universe. And they know it. Also, uh, the thing that they're super afraid of is uh, zipping up their genitals and their um and their jeans. Oh, very. <laughs> yeah. Their 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 traffic cone body shaped jeans. You can get those. Like, at I know. Gap. I know. You know, depending depending on your equipment down there, you know the flaps or the danger like sticks out a little bit more, has a little bit more flappier. You know. Oh God, that sounds awful. Yeah. That is pretty terrifying. It really really sucks. (laughs) It's the first, it's like the first thing they learned when they went to like, when were jeans invented? 1880s. It's the first thing like they learned about humankind when they went, uh, when they switched places with somebody in the 1880s. And they're like, this is the worst thing that could have happened to us. You know how we had to lock away the Shogos that already lived here? below and we're like terrible no this is worse you cannot imagine there's like hundreds of like tomes of text about just accidentally zipping up your genitals in jeans yeah uh in fact some would say there's too many (laughs) Uh. it's all from one guy (laughs) 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 it's one year that it happened to and it just won't shut up about it you know how in like Chainsaw Man, a devil gets born of people of things people fear. Yeah, he he single handedly created that devil. <laughs> it's one person <laughs> feeding this fear. When the when the show it's got, a very powerful de- de- devil, and we it's one person. Oh my god! It's just a pair of jeans. And they're nice, and they fit great, and they're kind of stretchy, and yet every time, just every time you zip them up, it happens. That's what the that's what the Shogoths will become when they when they inevitably break through the seals that they have on them. They'll just become a pair of jeans. Yeah, we basically left off with him talking about how the Yith are terrified of two things. Um, they're terrified of Shogoths. Uh, which is under like every 
every alien race we've run into, regardless of how powerful they are, are all afraid of Shogoths. Even the Wiggly Boys, uh, the Elder Things who made them, are afraid of them. Um, I also imagine the Crab People are afraid of them. They didn't really talk about them much, though. I don't know. I think the Migos like kind of chill. Be like, yeah, we're both <laughs> fucked up, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> they do both exist like outside the normal realm of matter. It would make sense. <laughs> They're like, we don't have to worry about the Shogoths. We're like the same. Whatever. We just can fly and they can't. That's the only difference. And I guess we're we're entirely sentient, where they're only partially. Yeah, and whenever they mock us, we just mock them back. Yeah, they're like, oh, look at me, I have big, meaty claws. It's like... Hey, me, I have big, meaty claws. Oh, look at me, I have tiny little claws of a little bitch baby. <laughs> oh, look at me, I made out of plasticine. <laughs> I can't even copy people right. <laughs> And then they shove them in a locker and tear up their math homework. That's exactly how it goes. Um, but yeah, so we ended with that. Oh, the other thing is the end of the universe, which they will live to eventually see. And they are afraid of it, which I don't know. Uh, sounds like a them problem, honestly. I don't know why they're so surprised that the universe will end. That's just how it be. But uh, oh, I think they're I think they're weak. I I embrace I embrace the universe ending. Yeah, right. Like all things come to an end, guys. And you know what? Seems kind of like a relief, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> um. Oh, and I guess the the main character kind of came to the realization that these are memories, not um visions or hallucinations or whatever that he's having. He's not. Well, I mean, he's probably going crazy, but also like it's not because these are things he's remembering. Um, he did talk a little bit about the other humans he met who are in Yith bodies while he was there. That was kind of interesting from all over this um, span of time in Earth's history. Uh, all right. Shall we get shall we get on with this? I think we're going back to the present and we're not talking about him being in his Yith body anymore. His traffic, his traffic cone body. <laughs> all right. The Shadow Out of Time, Chapter 5. That is the world of which my dreams brought me dim, scattered echoes every night. I cannot hope to give my true idea of the horror and dread contained in such echoes. For it was upon a wholly intangible quality, the sharp sense of pseudo-memory, that which feelings mainly depended. My studies gradually gave me a defense against these feelings in the form of rational psychological explanations. And this saving influence has augmented by the subtle touch of accustomedness, which comes with the passage of time. Yet, in spite of everything, the vague, creeping terror would return momentarily, and now and then. It did not, however, engulf me as it had before. And after 1922, I lived in a very normal life of work and recreation. In the course of years, I began to feel that my experience, together with the kindred cases and the related folklore, ought to be definitely summarized and published for the benefit of serious students. Hence, I prepared a series of articles, briefly covering the whole ground, and illustrated with crude sketches of some of the shapes, scenes, decorative motifs, and hieroglyphs remembered from the dreams. These appeared at various times during 1928 and 1929 in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, but did not attract much attention. 
Meanwhile, I continued to record my dreams with the minutest care, even though the growing stack of reports attained, even though the growing stack of reports attained troublesomely vast proportions. Oh, you know what I learned the other day? Speaking of um, how memory is tied to emotion, I found out the other day that um, people with antisocial personality disorder. Um, and this is not all people with antisocial personality disorder, but some people with it who don't feel any empathy or like what humans typically call empathy have a very hard time forming memories because memories are attached to emotion. Hmm. Okay. So that means I have too many emotions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to get rid of them. Right. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> I have too many emotions. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to my psychiatrist. Slam down on the, uh, on their desk, uh, a note that says, "I have too many emotions. Get rid of them. Get rid of them." Yeah, I watched a, I watched an interview with somebody who, um, they don't, uh, they don't really have empathy as we feel it, and they don't really feel like emotions at all, um, like even like happiness or like camaraderie they don't even really feel that um and they talked about like yeah i i don't have many memories because i my brain doesn't assign emotion to them i don't feel attached to anything so i don't remember it and i thought that yeah. was really interesting that is very interesting i i find it really cool though that even back then um in the 1930s we knew that um memories were attached to emotion which makes sense if you think about it for long enough. On July 10th, 1934, there was forwarded to me by the Psychological Society the letter which opened the culminating and most horrible phase of the whole mad ordeal. It was postmarked from Pilbara. Okay, that is how that's spelled. It was postmarked from Pilbara, Western Australia, and bore the signature of one whom I found, upon inquiry, to be a mining engineer of considerable prominence. Enclosed were some very curious snapshots. I will reproduce the text in its entirety, and no reader can fail to understand how tremendous an effect it and the photographs had upon me. I was, for a time, almost stunned and incredulous, for although I had often thought that some basis of fact must underlie certain phases of the legends which had colored my dreams, I was nonetheless unprepared for anything like a tangible survival from a lost world remote beyond all imagination. Most devastating of all were the photographs. For here, in cold, incontroversible realism, there stood out against a background of sand certain worn-down water-ridge storm-weathered blocks of stone, whose slightly convex tops and slightly concave bottoms told their own story. When I studied them with a magnifying glass, I could see all too plainly, amidst the batterings and pittings, the trace of those vast curvilinear designs and occasional hieroglyphs whose significance had become so hideous to me. But here is the letter which speaks for itself. Pilbara, West Australia, May 18, 1934. Professor N. W. Peasley, American Psychological Society. 30 East 41st Street, New York City, USA. My dear sir, a recent conversation with Dr. Ian e. Boyle of Perth and some papers with your articles, which he has just sent me, 
made it advisable for me to tell you about certain things I have seen in the great sandy desert east of our gold field here. It would seem in view of the peculiar legends about old cities with huge stonework and strange designs and hieroglyphs which you describe, and I have come upon something very important. The Blackfellows have always been full of talk about great stones with marks upon them, and seem to have a terrible fear of such things. They connect them in some way with their common racial legends about Budai, the gigantic old man who lies asleep for ages underground with his head on his arm, and who will someday awake and eat up the world. There are some very old and half-forgotten tales of enormous underground huts of great stones, where passages led down and down, and where horrible things have happened. The Blackfellows claim that once some warriors, fleeing in a battle, went down into one and never came back but that frightful winds began to blow from the place very soon after they went down. However, there usually isn't much in what these natives say. But what I have to tell you is more than this. Two years ago, when I was prospecting about 500 miles east in the desert, I came on a lot of queer pieces of dressed stone, perhaps three by two by two feet in size, and weathered and pitted to the very limit. At first, I couldn't find any of the marks the Blackfellows told about, but when I looked close enough, I could make that some deeply carved lines in spite of the weathering. They were peculiar curves, and just like that, the Blacks had tried to describe. I imagine there must have been 30 or 40 blocks, some nearly buried in the sand, and all within a circle, perhaps a quarter of a mile's diameter. When I saw some, I looked around closely for more and made a careful reckoning of the place with my instruments. I also took pictures of ten or twelve of the most typical blocks, and will enclose the prints for you to see. In turn, my information and pictures over to the government at Perth. I turn my information and pictures over to the government at Perth, but they have done nothing with them. Then I met Dr. Boyle, who had read your articles in the Journal of the American Psychological Society and in time happened to mention the stones. He was enormously interested, and became quite excited when I shooed him my snapshots, saying that the stones and markings were just like those of the masonry you had dreamed, about and seen described in legend. He meant to write you, but was delayed. Meanwhile, he sent me most of the magazines with your articles, and I saw at once from your drawings and descriptions that my stones are certainly the kind you mean. You can appreciate this from the enclosed prints. Later on, you will hear directly from Dr. Boyle. Now I can understand how important all this will be to you. Without questions, we are faced with the remains of an unknown civilization, older than any dreamed of before, and forming a basis for your legends. As a mining engineer, I have some knowledge of geology and can tell you that these blocks are so ancient they frighten me. They are Ooh, most... spooky. <laughs> <They're> so spooky. <laughs> <laughs> Something gold. <laughs> I can tell you these rocks, spooky. Ah! Oh, the passage of time. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Things existed before me. Oh, my gosh. They are mostly sandstone and granite. The one is almost certainly made of a queer sort of cement or concrete. They bear evidence of water action, 
as if this part of the world had been submerged and come up again after long ages. All since these blocks were made and used, it is a matter of hundreds of thousands of years, or heaven knows how much more. I don't like to think about it. In view of your previous diligent work in tracking down the legends and everything connected with them, I cannot doubt but you will want to lead an expedition to the desert and make some archaeological excavations. Both Dr. Boyle and I are prepared to cooperate in such work, if you, or organizations known to you, can furnish the funds. I can get together a dozen miners for the heavy digging. The blacks would be of no use, for i found that they have almost maniacal fear of this particular spot. Boyle and I are saying nothing to others. For you, very obviously, ought to have precedence in any discoveries or credit. The place can be reached from Pilbara in about four days by motor tractor, which we'd need for our apparatus. It is somewhat west and south of Warburton Path of 1873, and a hundred miles southeast of Joanna Spring. We could float things up the DeGray River instead of starting from Pilbara, but all that can be talked over later. Roughly, the stones lie at a point about 22 degrees, 3 minutes, and 14... Wait, is that right? Yeah. 22 degrees, 3 minutes, and 14 seconds south latitude, 125 degrees, 0 minutes, and 39 seconds east longitude. The climate is tropical, and the desert conditions are trying. Any expedition had better made in winter, June or July or August. I shall welcome further correspondence upon this subject and am keenly eager to assist in any plan. You may devise, after studying your articles, I am deeply impressed with the profound significance of the whole matter. Dr. Boyle will write later. When rapid communication is needed, a cable to Perth can be relayed by wireless. Hoping profoundly for an early message, believe me, most faithful are yours, Robert B.F. McKenzie. Is his middle initial stand for best friend? Or Bioforce or Big Fucking <laughs> Robert Big Fucking McKenzie. <laughs> Just imagine the meeting. He's like, you know what? Like, I really love that we've had all this correspondence. Thank you for telling me about this. Like, it's really important to me. I just need to know what are your two middle initials stand for? And he's like, don't worry about it. It's not important. <laughs> Like you know how you know how like my my dad likes to call me big guy. Y- yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> well. <laughs> big fucking McKenzie. <laughs> oh my gosh! I just love how in every H.P. Lovecraft story, there's talk of like a cursed place, and like the locals or the natives are like, "Fuck this place! This place fucking sucks." And every time there's somebody who's like, oh, well, they're stupid. They don't know anything. And you know what? Guess what? Turns out the place fucking sucks. Yeah. Turns out you <laughs> should go there. Turns out it's a curse. Turns out there's some alligator people living in the basement and they will eat you and then draw pictures about it later. It turns out when the locals tell you not to go to Ohio, you don't go to Ohio. <laughs> Don't go to Ohio. You spend long enough time there, you either become an astronaut or a serial killer. And no, there is no in between. (laughs) There's a reason why more people leave there than are born there. Sometimes you become both. (laughs) 
or almost, I should say, almost become both. <laughs> it has to be. I want now. I need to see if there's a sci-fi movie about about a serial killer astronaut. I mean, um, God, the closest well, we got is that one lady who went across the. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. The one that drove all the way to her ex-lover's house, like straight for like like 36 hours or something. That was wild. Um, God, Sunshine. That's the movie I'm thinking of. There's an astronaut uh, like, who's a serial killer in that. Uh, it, it, I thought that and was more being driven. They're being driven mad by the. I mean, the whole thing is he looked at the sun for too long and went crazy. Yeah, like I think that's less of a serial killer and more of a <laughs> we're sending a nuke to the moon to restart it madness. I stared at the sun for too long and now I've gone crazy. <laughs> I'm on a nuke spaceship and I'm and uh driving straight to the sun. Wow, it turns out if you stare at the sun for too long directly, it might do some damage. <laughs> Just a little bit. Although Sunshine's really good. Sunshine is really good. I love Sunshine. It's a good movie. Um I guess eh, no, Event Horizon doesn't really count. No, that has too much Satan in it. <laughs> or whatever. The equivalent of Satan. Yeah. Actually, um, no, Satan's okay. Beelzebub, no, Beelzebub's okay. It's more like the Hellraiser dimension. Yeah. <laughs> they're just, like, real horny. And they're just like, oh, give me more pain because plain equals pleasure. Ah. And then you say, oh, you're such a good boy. And they're just like, I hate it. Oh, it hurts. No, I don't. No, what's the opposite of a praise kink? <laughs> a decoration kink, obviously. Oh, Some obviously. people may have both. And but then like, you're just like, oh, this sucks. What what turns? What is it called when praise turns you off, though? Not degradation. Oh, like, oh. I wonder what that's called. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there are space horror movies, sci-fi horror movies. I mean, that's not, no, but serial killer. No, specifically, like, like I became an astronaut to kill specifically to, other astronauts. To, to murder other people on the International Space Station. <laughs> that would be, that would actually be a good movie. I'm surprised that this has not happened. That'd be, uh, yeah. That'd be terrifying. That's just me, though, because uh, the claustrophobia of being in a space station sounds terrible. And I'm not claustrophobic. I think I'd be happy. I really like uh, claustrophobic spaces. Oh, I okay. I, I like being in small spaces. I have this like thing it, where if I can't just, like, get up and leave and go wherever I want, I don't like it. I also have gorephobia. So I can't that be contained. Be Oh, I could be so contained. Contain me, please. <laughs> I can't for a while, but at some point I'll be like, no, I want to go to Dairy Queen, and you can't stop me from getting my Eminem Blizzard. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Ohio, uh, let's... <laughs> Where this story takes place. <laughs> Can we switch out West Australia with Ohio? <laughs> All right, let me... We just Of the immediate aftermath of this letter, much can be learned from the press. My good fortune in securing the backing of Miskatonic University was great, and both Mr. McKenzie and Dr. Boyle proved invaluable in arranging matters at the Australian end. 
We were not too specific with the public about our objects, since treatment by the cheaper newspapers. As a result, printed reports were sparing, but enough appeared to tell of our quest for reported Australian ruins and to chronicle our various preparatory steps. Professor William Dyer of the college's geology department, leader of the Miskatonic Antarctic Expedition of 1930 to 31. Oh, hey, he's back. I mean, he could just tell him, like, yes, um, there are alien civilizations that existed before us, and they sucked. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, eh, no, the Wiggly Boys like eugenics too much to not suck, I'm afraid. Professors William Dyer of the college's geology department, leader of the Miskatonic Antarctic Expedition of 1930 to 1931, Ferdinand C. Ashley of the Department of Ancient History, and Tyler M. Freeborn of the Department of Anthropology, together with my own son Wingate, accompanied me. My correspondent Mackenzie came to Arkham early in 1935 and assisted with her final preparations. He proved to be a tremendously competent and affable man of about 50, admirably well-read and deeply familiar with all the conditions of Australian travel. He had tractors waiting at Pilbara, and we chartered a tramp steamer of sufficiently light draught to get up the river to that point. We were prepared to excavate in the most careful and scientific fashion, sifting every particle of sand and disturbing nothing which might seem to be in our near or its original situation. Sailing from Boston aboard the Wheezy Lexington on March 28, 1935, we had a leisurely trip across the Atlantic and Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea, and across the Indian Ocean to our goal. I need not tell you how the sight of the low, sandy West Australian coast depressed me, and how I detested the crude mining town and dreary gold fields where the tractors were given their last loads. Dr. Boyle, who met us, proved to be elderly, pleasant, and intelligent, and his knowledge of psychology led him into many long discussions with my son and me. Discomfort and expectancy were oddly mingled in most of us when, at length, our party of 18 rattled forth over the arid leagues of sand and rock. On Friday, May 31st, we forded a branch of the Degray and entered the realm of utter desolation. A certain positive terror grew on me as we advanced to this actual sight of the elder world behind the legends. A terror, of course, abetted by the fact that my disturbing dreams and pseudo-memories still beset me with unabated force. I like how he's like, gosh, this place is so desolate. It's like a desert or something. Yeah, okay. you're at a well, desert. <laughs> I may have not been paying attention for the last five minutes because I was making this drop. My resolution? airstrike bomb them bomb them keep bombing them bomb them again and again <laughs> so it's uh judge gene Pereira uh or oh whatever uh God, talking about God. isis but it's just a real ah. good response soundbite to just a lot of things i okay here's the thing having a soundboard is like having a dopamine button it really is. It really it's is just, like that. <laughs> like I could just, I could just make sounds happen. It's sometimes oh. if the person doesn't know what's going on, it's like it's like a joke almost. It really, you have caught me off guard with many sounds. <laughs> <laughs> 
But but yeah, to to respond to what that dude was thinking about, yeah, it's a fucking desert, dude. What are you talking like, about? What, what what were you expecting? Do, do like like it's a yeah, desert. Like it's pretty desolate. Like it's kind of like one of its main features, actually. <laughs> That's like, like the whole point of it. Like it's like that for most of the year, except for maybe a couple of weeks, and then yeah. And maybe, like, a couple spots is not, but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty desolate, buddy. He, this dude has, like, lived on the uh, east coast of the United States his entire life. And it sounds like he has never left. <laughs> it'd, be like, it'd, it'd be like me going to, like, well, living in Kentucky and be like, man, it's just so wet here all the time. Like, of Why? course, this is thing. It's just wet. It's It has a lot of lakes. <laughs> no, duh. <laughs> It was on Monday, June 3rd, that we saw the first of the half-buried blocks. I cannot describe the emotion with which I actually touched an objective reality, a fragment of cyclopean masonry in every respect, like the blocks in the walls of my dream buildings. There was a distinct trace of carving, and my hands trembled as I recognized part of a curvilinear decorative scheme made hellish to me through years of tormenting nightmare and baffling research. A month of digging brought a total of 1,250 blocks in varying stages of wear and disintegration. Most of these were carven megaliths with curved tops and bottoms. A majority were smaller, flatter, plain-surfaced and square or rectangularly cut, like those of the floors and pavements in my dreams. So... What I'm hearing is, like, they kind of be thick, though. Oh, they be thick with two C's, baby. <laughs> like, they, they have curved tops and bottoms. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Octagonal. Oh. <laughs> That's a good shape. <laughs> I do love me some octagonal ladies. It's okay, dude. Like, contain it. Some... Some things are curvy, buddy. <laughs> uh. While few were singularly massive and curved, or slanted in such a manner as to suggest use in vaulting or groining, or as part of arches or round window casings. The deeper and the farther north and east we dug, the more blocks we found, though we still failed to discover any trace of arrangement among them. Professor Dyer was appalled at the measureless age of the fragments, and Freeborn found traces of symbols, which fitted darkly into certain Papuan and Polynesian legends of infinite antiquity. The condition and scattering of the blocks told mutely of the vertiginous cycles of time and geologic upheavals of cosmic savagery. We had an airplane with us, and my son Wingate would often go up to different heights and scan the sand and rock waste for signs of dim, large-scale outlines either differences of level or trails of scattered blocks. His results were virtually negative, for whenever he would one day think he had glimpsed some significant trend, he would, on his next trip, find the impression replaced by another equally insubstantial, a result of the sifting wind-blown sand. One or two of these ephemeral suggestions, though, affected me queerly and disagreeably. They seemed, after a fashion, to dovetail horribly with something which I had dreamed or read, but which I can no longer remember. 
There was a terrible pseudo-familiarity about them, which somehow made me look furtively and apprehensively over the abominable, sterile terrain toward the north and northeast. Around the first week in July 1st, developed an unaccountable set of mixed emotions about that general northeasterly region. There was horror and there was curiosity, but more than that, there was a persistent and perplexing illusion of memory. I tried all sorts of psychological expedients to get these notions out of my head, but met with no success. Sleeplessness also gained upon me, but I almost welcomed this because of the resultant shortening of my dream periods. I acquired the habit of taking long, lone walks in the desert late at night. Sleeplessness was just running up on me like every night. It was just like running real quick. Just like plop, 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 plop. Because <laughs> it was weird flip flops. <laughs> I didn't understand how fast it was running because it was weird flip flops in the desert. <laughs> I could hear La Chocla stalking me in the night. <laughs> I love that La Chocla is a multicultural thing. Hitting somebody with a flip-flop exists in all parts of the world. <laughs> My favorite scene in Kung Fu Hustle is when the landlady talk- takes off her sandal and starts hitting them. <laughs> you, can't even, you can't even escape La Chocla in Western Australia. In the desert, there's no escape. Sleeplessness also gained upon me, but I almost welcomed this because of the resultant shortening of my dream periods. I acquired the habit of taking long, lone walks in the desert late at night, usually to the north or northeast, whither the sum of my strange new impulses seemed subtly to pull me. Sometimes, on these walks, I would stumble over nearly buried fragments of the ancient masonry though there were fewer visible blocks here than where we had started. I felt sure that there must be a vast abundance beneath the surface. The ground was less level than our camp, and the prevailing high winds now and then piled the sand into fantastic temporary hillocks, exposing some traces of the elder stones while it covered other traces. I was cruelly anxious to have the excavations extend to this territory, yet at the same time dreaded, what might be revealed. Obviously, I was getting into a rather bad state. All the worse because I could not account for it. An indication of my poor nervous health can be gained from my response to an odd discovery, which I made on one of my nocturnal rambles. It was on the evening of July 11th, when a gibbous moon flooded the mysterious hillocks with a curious pallor. Wandering somewhat beyond my usual limits, I came upon a great stone which seemed to differ markedly from any we had encountered. It was later studying the object carefully and supplementing it was almost wholly covered, but I stooped and cleared away the sand with my hands, later studying the object carefully and supplementing the moonlight with my electric torch. Unlike the other very large rocks, this one was perfectly square-cut with no convex or concave surface. It seemed, too, to be of the dark basaltic substance, wholly dissimilar to the granite and sandstone, and occasional concrete of the now-familiar fragments. So, okay, every time someone says hillock, I just think kulak, and I'm just like... <laughs> I'm just brought back to the Soviets, <laughs> the Soviet Union. Just like, yeah, look at the kulak over there. <laughs> 
It's just being stolid looking over a crowd. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and next thing you know, you wrong him in some way, and they use the oldie Photoshop to remove you from every photograph. <laughs> oh my gosh. You've been waiting to use that sound for so long. <laughs> to be fair, it did come up organically in my mind. <laughs> that is good. That is good. <laughs> I didn't force it. That's the thing. I never I never try to force it. Sometimes, no. Actually, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes. I mean, but, you have some sounds on your soundboard that are just too good to go unplayed for too long. Yeah. Suddenly, I rose, turned, and ran for the camp at top speed. It was a wholly unconscious and irrational flight, and only when I was close to my camp did I fully realize why I had run. Then it came to me. The queer dark stone was something which I had dreamed and read about, and which was linked with the uttermost horrors of the Aeon Old Legendary. It was one of the blocks of that basaltic elder masonry, which the fabled great race held in such fear. The tall, windowless ruins left by those brooding, half-material alien things that festered in Earth's nether abysses, and against whose wind-like invisible forces the trapdoor was sealed and the sleepless sentinels posted. I remained awake all that night, and by dawn realized how silly I had been to let the shadow of a myth upset me. Instead of being frightened, I should have had a discoverer's enthusiasm. The next forenoon, I told the others about my find, and dire freeborn Boyle and my son and I set out to view the anomalous block. Failure, however, confronted us. I had formed no clear idea of the stone's location, and a late wind had wholly altered the hillocks of shifting sand. And that's the end of chapter five. Yeah. I have no idea where this is going, by the way. Um... Like, I don't remember it. I have never read this one, so I, I just don't me, have any idea. Me neither. I have a feeling... So the biggest thing is that He's had no, like, material proof of what he went through besides, like, the the weird machine that the Yith used to go back to its body. Other than that, though, he has, like, no proof of this thing that has been going on besides some, like, historical accounts. So I have a feeling that maybe he's gonna get proof. Yeah. Or, or maybe it'll end, like, how um At the Mountains of Manus ended, where, like, the Wiggly Boys are all gone. They're all dead. Their civilization is over. However, there's still a bunch of Shogoths just hanging out. Just chillaxing. Just, you know, doing their thing that Shogoths do. Whatever that might be. Yeah. And who doesn't love a good Shogoth? Shogoth. I mean, apparently most uh, most uh, of the older races out there. I mean, like whatever. Shogoth. What little bitches. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they would never be able to. They would never. They would last a minute in a uh, in a two thousands uh, cod <laughs> lobby. <laughs> oh my god! I not a people. Not a lot of people would, <laughs> but especially not like any of these. The Wiggly Boys, the Yith, the Crap. None of them would be able to handle a two thousand cod lobby. Yeah, but um, yeah, I don't know. We'll, I don't we'll know. It'll be know. interesting. 
It'll be interesting to see where this goes. I'm excited. Yeah, like, I hope. Like, I hope they're Shogosks. I always like when they show up. Yeah, like it, it just be it, it just be another a, another one where Shogoths show up at the end. <laughs> it would. I like on one hand, I love when the Shogoths show up. On the other hand, it would be nice when something if something else did show up. <clears throat> yeah, like like just anything. Anything, anything else? Yeah. Oh. Uh, all right, you got anything else to say about this chapter? Uh, I don't know. That this I'm, one wasn't the greatest. It wasn't bad. It just yeah, wasn't like, I'm glad we're back in the present. Yeah, it's just I wish something would happen. Yeah, we just HP's always got to talk about them getting ready for their expedition. Which I, again, I don't mind that. It's just like I want I more plot. Give me the plot. Yeah, give me some plot. Give me Put some plot in. between describing things. Put in my little no. grabby hands. Do it. Like, like, have a reason why it is. Um, like they're tell while why they're doing all of this. Uh, um, info dumping. Yeah, yeah. Work the exposition into the story naturally. That's all I ask. HP. Well, yeah. We have one more story, and then he he's dead. So, but how many how many chapters do we have left? We have three. If three. Hmm. There's eight. There's eight total. We just read chapter five. We'll read chapter six next time. So okay. we got three more. So things I hope will start speeding up from here. Yeah. Like the concepts are cool. Don't get me wrong. It's just like, yeah. you know, there's a little bit too much uh, plot. Well, there's not enough plot for all the. Uh, there's too much um, exposition and not enough plot. Yeah. 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 All right, well, um, well, this has been over in Smith, and remember, you are an irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. Your keening static howl is like no other, and if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable, and the mansions of silence would forever fill with our lament. Okay, bye! Bye! bye. Can I be expected to tolerate? Uh, so I started to think